Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Listen, this morning, it's such a privilege to introduce uh, Mike Kanjan uh, as our guest speaker. Mike's uh, married. He has three grown uh, children. He has four grandchildren. Um, he's pastored in um, uh, Miami and in Tallahassee and in Baltimore, where he's been about the last 15 years at a historic uh, Chapelgate Presbyterian Church in a suburb of Baltimore. Mike's Ministry has been going to churches that were um, very small or ailing or had once had a great day but were uh, definitely um, struggling and uh, seeing God come and, and, and gospel revival break out in those uh, churches. The churches, each one of them he's served has become vibrant places of healthy um, church ministry. That's been his gift, not starting a church but, but resurrecting um, broken, unhealthy, um, and struggling churches. So it's been a beautiful thing. I've known Mike uh, virtually my whole life. We um, went to school together starting in seventh grade, Christian school in Miami. Um, We went to church together um, a good part of our childhood. Uh, We went to college together. We were college roommates. I was just remembering uh, Mike and I um, having uh, guns pulled on us on a dark night in uh, rural Mississippi, two boys from South Florida in, uh, on a road in, uh, outside of Gluckstadt, Mississippi. Um, more on that perhaps later. Um, um, we went, uh, got married, we went to graduate school um, together. We've done um, uh, ministry and but Mike, uh, Mike was telling me as we drove in last night, he said, I was here for the dedication of the first building on this, that site. That was 1988. Uh, he was here in that um, service. Um, I just have to tell you that um, he's been a consummate um, friend um, to me. He's uh, loved me, prayed for me, um, coached me, um, laughed with me a good deal of the ministry. We've talked uh, virtually uh, every week uh, through the years, and um, um, if you were to ask me, um, define friendship, uh, define a friend, I could just pull out a picture of Mike Kanjan and say, this is what a friend looks like. So you can imagine how honored I feel uh, to introduce you to my friend um, today, Mike Kanjan. Love you, Ray. Thank you, Ray. I, I'm so honored to be here. Uh, so honored to have been able to uh, to just watch the, the the Seven Rivers story unfold. Um, I've gotten to preach in a bunch of churches. As you know, when you get uh, 2,000 years old like we are, uh, and you're a preacher, you get to preach in a bunch of church get churches. Get to meet a bunch of pastors. Get to hear a bunch of sermons and. Uh, Man, uh, I've gotten to meet a lot of great ones, but none greater than the guy that's pastored this church for 40 years. Uh, uh, your, your pastor's special. 
my uh, wife Catherine isn't here. Uh, she's my dearest friend. Uh, and um, it's because Ray and another friend and I who we're going to pick up at the airport today are going to go and play some bad golf and talk trash and, and uh, enjoy one another. But, uh, but she's usually with me, and I would be honored for you to, to meet Catherine. Uh, Ray and Diane and I and Catherine have been friends uh, for 40 years. Uh, Ray and I for over 50, Diane for 40 of them. Uh, and um, Diane, uh, you're, you're wonderful. You don't look a day over 40, Ray. You don't look a day under 90. I, you're just like it's never changed, you know. Um, it's true. Uh, we did have guns pulled on us, and that was the night I knew what it meant to live in Mississippi. It was, uh, it was an exciting experience looking back. Uh, I have a few messages. Uh, Mikey, uh, Steve Dalwig says hi. Um, lots of ties here. Julie Grennan, the McMurrays, the Tuckers, Andy Kaser, who's moved, and I grew up two blocks away from one another. And uh, your staff is phenomenal. Uh, that, that's been one of the, the gifts of being able to, to uh, interact with uh, your church for all these years. Just really honored to be here. Um, it's an honor to be in ministry. Uh, Michelle, it was great to hear your words. I shared last night that uh, I just loved what she said. Catherine and I went to Africa two years ago, or three years ago now. Uh, we, we think that, uh, that adjusting to a new land is, is just a matter of a few differences, but it's radically different. And, uh, and when God gives you love for that land, it's really, it's, it's of him, it's profound. Uh, I was uh, intrigued by the uh, pamphlet. I, I didn't put two and two together where uh, it's Democratic Republic of Africa, but up top it says Michelle Smith, DR Africa. And I thought, I want to meet this Dr. Africa or Dr. Congo. So I told her she ought to get T-shirts that say Dr. Congo. Uh, she could raise the rest of her funds. I'd buy a few of them. XL, by the way. So I'm going to read from John 15 this morning, uh, verses 12 through 17. Uh, this is God's word. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, than then someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're here. Uh, we, we, uh, we have heard you, your, your song in uh, our worship. Father, we hear you singing over us. We delight in you as you delight in us. We praise your name. And now we pray that you'd speak the gospel into our lives in spite of the insecurities and sins and failings of the one who delivers the message that we may know you. For We pray in your name. Amen. One of uh, Baltimore's treasures is Michael Phelps. He's the 23-time uh, gold uh, medal uh, Olympic swimmer, uh, and uh, the, the record holder broke Mark Spitz uh, forever records from the 70s. Amazing athlete. 
Uh, and uh, they love him in Baltimore, like they love Johnny Unitas, like they love Cal Ripken Jr. and other uh, famous athletes. And uh, if you go to games around the Olympic time, you'll, you'll see Ravens jerseys or, or Orioles jerseys, but you also see Michael Phelps shirts. He's so well-known and so loved because he's a Baltimore boy. And, and uh, like Michelle, he came home and, and, uh, and he's beloved there. But, but, uh, but he struggled with depression and it was something he could, he could sort of hide behind the ferocity of his competition and his competitive juices behind his preparations for the Olympics. But as his, his abilities began to wane, as he could see the end of his ability to compete on an Olympic level, uh, his, his depression got the best of him. He got arrested some. He had some embarrassing situations that he fell into. He got into conflicts with his trainer and uh, he became suicidal. And it wasn't until a group of his friends came to him and convinced him that he needed help, that he went and did it, and it saved his life. C.S. Lewis says that friendship is the least natural of loves, but in some way uh, most godlike, because it is something that we share for no reason other than to be friends. Isn't that cool? The only reason that we have friendship with one another is to share friendship. Not everyone can be married, but everyone can have friends. Not every child has siblings, but everyone has brothers and sisters through friendship. What a gift. Friday, uh, just Friday, uh, the New York Times uh, printed, uh, published an, an op-ed piece by David Brooks, one of their writers, uh, entitled The Secrets of Lasting Friendships. Uh, in, this, in this article, he cites uh, experts, I guess, who uh, offer keys to moving from acquaintances to close friendships. And there are all kinds of factors that he lists, and one of them is that you have to spend 195 hours together in order to move into close friendship. And I, 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 I thought about uh, Ray and I, we have known each other for 438,000 hours. So either we're friends or we hate each other's guts and we feel trapped in that because we've spent probably a little less than a quarter of that together, which is a little scary when you think about it. But uh, the world craves friendship, and yet we just came out of this time, this COVID time. Uh, you all, I think, did a little better with it than most of the rest of the world, but uh, uh, the, uh, where there was so much isolation and where things like friendship were very artificial. Because you can call someone a friend on Facebook, and I'm on Facebook or, book or Twitter or Instagram and all that, but what we find is that these friends, when they start talking politics or religion or things like that, they unfriend each other. Because why? It was artificial. It wasn't intimacy. It wasn't 195 hours together. It wasn't even one hour together. It was this name with images or pictures on the computer screen that you said, you are my friend. But as soon as there was something that went against the grain of who you were. There was no wrestling through it with one another. There was no fighting it out. There was a, it was just, we're not friends anymore. And yet the world craves friendship. You see it in the articles. You read it in the articles. You hear it in the music. You see it on television and in the movies. I think of movies like Stand By Me and October Sky and other ones that are stories of friends who, who walk through life together. I, I mean, I have a friend that I've known for 50 years. It is a gift from God. 
God. You hear it in the stories like of that, of that third grader a couple years ago who had this autoimmune disease and he lost all his hair and he was filled with so much shame that he walked around with a baseball cap on all the time until 14 of his friends went to sports clips and they got their heads shaved bald and, and then all they did was take pictures of their bald heads with one another and enjoy one another. It was really beautiful. We love those stories. When Catherine and I did youth work in, my, in Miami, right out of uh, seminary, uh, the big song in the early 80s was Michael W. Smith's Friends Are Friends Forever. And, you know, at the end of retreats, the girls would all put their arms on each other's shoulders and sway to it and cry and stuff like that because friendship is something that we want to do. We want to be befriended. Eugene Peterson said that friendship is like the Lord's Supper. It takes what is common in human experience and turns it into something holy. And I know this is true. I know that what my friend and I enjoy is more than two people that have coexisted in the same space. I mean, the time that we lived together is when we almost killed each other. That's when we were going at each other's throats. But the reality is that God has done something holy there that's beautiful. I have a great friend in Tallahassee that I met while he was pulling uh, electrical cables through uh, in a ditch that had been dug in a building project that was of our church. And we sat there for hours and it forged the beginning of a bond that has lasted to this day. So this morning I want to focus on those words, you are my friends or I have called you friends that Jesus gives to the disciples. Uh, to be Jesus' friends is to be known and loved. I think that's what we want. We love being loved, but we want the person who loves us to know us. Because something in the back of our head says, if, if he only knew me, he might not be my friend. If she only knew where I've been or what I've done or who I am, she might not be my friend. An experience uh, several years ago, uh, like uh, Ray's dad, my dad died with uh, dementia. He had a, a certain form of it, and it debilitated him for two years. Um, for, for part of that time, it was really more, it was closer to three to five years. For part of that time, we were in Miami, and each day in the morning, I'd go by, help him out of bed, help him back in at the end of the day, take him outside so he could feel the fresh air. Sort of didn't know what was going on, but it was really a sweet time. And then when we moved to Maryland, I'd fly down every month and, and check on mom, give dad a haircut, shave him, fix stuff, and spend time with him. And one day, I was in his room, in their room, and I was sitting on the bed as I would do with dad and talking to him because he couldn't talk back. Uh, he had these steely blue eyes. They'd look right through you. And I looked at dad and I said, do you know who I am? And he said, no. I said, who do I look like? He said, my son, Michael. And I thought, the person he knows, he loves. He doesn't recognize me, this human in front of him, but the son that is me that he has known, he has loved. And that was very powerful. 
Jesus used the term uh, friend or friendship in his stories, in his teachings, in his encounters, even to Judas on the night that he betrayed him. He looked at Judas and said, friend, do what you came to do. Can you imagine how devastating that must have been to Judas to hear him use a term of endearment when he was going to sell him out for 20 pieces of silver or however much it was? How devastating that must have been. And here he is on the last day of his life, the last full day of his life. He's going to die 24 hours later. He's going to be betrayed and denied and, and abandoned by his friends. And he looks to them, and he's the one comforting them. He's the one that would, just a chapter before, said, you know, my peace I leave with you, and do not let your hearts be troubled. Uh, and all these things, he's, he's comforting his friends and telling them that he... That they're, very, that they're very special to him. And his last words are not about discipleship, even though it is about discipleship. They're not about doctrine, even though it's doctrinal, and they're certainly not about denominational purity. No, Jesus' last talk to his, these, his disciples is about friendship. And it wasn't that he was keeping things light. In other words, it wasn't that he was like, what can I talk about that takes us off the subject, that I'm about to be arrested and died or anything like that. But I think what he was doing was saying that this thing that was spoiled in the garden when Adam and Eve enjoyed fellowship with God, who's, who, who they could hear walking through the garden, because you remember when they sinned, they could hear him walking through the garden. This thing that was spoiled in the garden because of sin and, and rebellion that we saw hints of in the redemptive story, like with Moses, who spoke to Moses, uh, to, to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend, Exodus 33, 11, and Abraham, who was called God's hand, friend, whom God buried. These things that we've given, been given glimpses of in redemption are restored in Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm the guy that brings it back. Listen, this is what we were made for. Friendship with God. Throughout his ministry, Jesus befriended the marginalized, the religiously excluded, the socially discarded, the morally compromised, the emotionally struggling. He finds us where we are. He isn't repulsed by what he finds. He isn't afraid. He sees past our mess, past our brokenness. He calls us his friends. He knows what you were made to be. So three things that I love about Jesus' friendship as, as I uh, look at these verses, and then I'll try and bring it home for you. First of all, I love how Jesus dispensed grace without demanding perfection. I love how Jesus dispensed grace without demanding perfection. He could have. He's God. He's perfect. He's holy. He could have expected perfection, but instead he, demanded, he, he dispensed grace. He, he didn't demand perfection. Within hours, all but one of his friends in that room would abandon, deny, betray, or act as though they never knew Jesus. But he chose them knowing this to be the case. He's the one who said, I have called you friends. No longer do I call you servants. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you. It was all his initiative. It was the initiative of grace. When he went to them and said, uh, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, he knew what they would do. When he washed their feet and said, unless I wash you, you have no share of me. He knew that within hours, these guys that were boasting of how they would defend him would deny him. Sure, Jesus was a, was a better friend to his disciples than they were to him. 
And, and, and the reality is that apart from his grace, we can't have friendship. Everything about God's grace defies everything about our fallen condition. The truth is that every day I am tempted to hate that God works with broken vessels because in doing so, I am admitting that I am one. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says, fallen anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. You see, I think it's a crisis to come to the realization that I need God, that I need grace. I don't want to need grace. I want to be good enough. I want to be righteous enough. I want to be holy enough, but I need grace. I need Jesus. Jesus was a better friend to his disciples than they were to him, but that's part of the equation too. We determine who we will be to the other and then receive them as they are. It's why Jesus, after Peter defended him, you know, defended himself by saying, I will never deny you, which he would do three times that night. And, you know, I'll fight to the end, which he would run like a coward. Uh, Jesus could look at him and say, Simon, Simon, Satan has, has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. Isn't that beautiful? Friendship with God is not for the perfect, but for the forgiven. And brokenness is its only precondition. So what this tells me is that the more that I rely on God's grace to move away from expecting friendship, a perfection from my friends, the sweeter the friendships are. As I said, Ray and I have known each other a long time. During that time, there's been a lot of good stuff. There's been a lot of disappointment. There have been a lot of arguments. There have been a lot of times when we were sort of moody with each other. There have been a lot of times when we had to work through some hard things. There's been good, there's bad, there's ugly, there's beautiful, all of which without there would be no friendship. Jesus understood this. Listen, if perfection is your demand or requirement for friendship, then there will never be someone good enough for you. And, and you will never measure up to someone else's expectations if it's theirs. It just isn't about that. And, and I don't know, and I know that I'm a, I want to be that kind of friend. I want to be that kind of friend that doesn't demand friendship, but I'm not always that. I just wish I were. So I love how Jesus dispensed grace without demanding perfection. And I love how Jesus loved his friends without keeping score. Have you ever had a friend that keeps score? It's really painful, isn't it? Like when they forgive you for doing something and then they act uh, offended when you, when you act, you know, forgiven. And, and they're looking at you like, I mean, I haven't gotten over what I forgave you of. And they expect you to kind of uh, ashes and sackcloth and all that stuff. And you want to say, you know, I wish you had waited a month before forgiving me. Well, what are they doing? They're keeping score. But love brackets what Jesus is saying here. Verse 12, love one another as I have loved you. Verse, seven, verse 13, greater love is no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Verse 17, so that you may love one another. Because this is where the 
the gospel is always going. It's where it always takes us. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5 when he's about to launch into the, the structure of the church with Timothy, his disciple in the faith, and to tell him how to watch for false teachings, where to put the elders and deacons, what worship should look like, and all of those things. And then in Second uh, Timothy to talk about the end of time and the coming of Jesus and all these things. But all of that stuff is the stuff of the life of the church that we need. It's beautiful. It's the kind of thing that brings tears to someone like Michelle's eyes when she comes to be with her home after three years of being in the U.S. But to get it going, what Paul says is the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's about love. That's where it's always going. That's what he says to the Corinthian church that is racked by divorce and conflict and lawsuits and, a, and, and the desecration of the, the Lord's Supper and all kinds of disunity and division and, and the pain of, the, of, of a church that is led by false teachers who put themselves above others and say that we've got the gifts to lead you. And you, it basically they're asking, it became a cult. And he speaks into it, and he speaks to all the problems of that church. And in chapters 12 and 14, he talks about the gifts that we have and why they're there and why they matter. But in verse 13, he says, but if you don't have love, you don't have a church. If you don't have love, you don't have squat. Because love's the thing that endures well, you say, well, wait a minute. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command. And later he says, you must bear fruit. So no, his love must be conditional. He must be saying, in order to be my friends, you have to prove to me. But that doesn't square with the gospel, does it? That's not what the gospel teaches. So what I think Jesus is saying, which does square with the gospel, is that friendship is identifiable as something new of Jesus in us. It's transformative. When we have an encounter with Jesus, he changes us. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, in order to be my friends, you have to produce fruit. He's saying, if you are my friends, you will produce fruit. You may not think you can. You might think that you don't have what it takes. I'm what it takes, and if you have me. In other words, Jesus rubs off on us. With Jesus, the love he lavished, the joy before him, the peace he secured for us, the mission that he lived out of, all begin to manifest in us. Think about his disciples. They were a mess for three years. They were always a couple steps forward and about 10 backwards, even on the night that Jesus was betrayed. They basically got into a food fight because Jesus is sitting there trying to say, hey, I'm leaving. I'm going to die. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be arrested. And they're like, yeah, in the kingdom, who gets to sit closest to you, Jesus? And it's like, whoa, it's amazing. Why didn't he just walk away? Well, because we're all that way, right? But the point is that he loved them. And he rubbed off on them, even to the extent that most of them became martyrs after he died. When it came to the disciples, everything that you could do wrong in a relationship and a friendship, they did to Jesus. They failed him, lied to him, doubted him, disappointed him, discouraged him, fell asleep on him in his hour of trouble uh, and need, defied him, betrayed him. But he loved them all the same as his friends. He never kept score or he wouldn't have gone to the cross in the first place. Now listen, if you're living in disregard for God's commands, that isn't friendship with Christ. And not because Jesus is unfair, but because you don't want it. 
You don't want to let him in. You don't want to need grace. Like Judas, who wanted the fish, who wanted the loaves, who wanted the acclaim, who wanted the treasury, who wanted the power, but, it, but you, you want him to rub off on you, but you don't want to give in to him. Maybe you just don't want to give your life over to him, as, give up your life as it is, or maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're afraid of what it would look like to start over, to start fresh. I got to tell you, and, and if you're keeping score, then you're missing out. Cheating yourself of, you're cheating yourself of true friendship. It isn't love. There's no, no joy in it. It's, it's, just, it's just me, and I don't want to be that kind of a friend, but I have to admit to you, sometimes I am. Sometimes I keep score. And then finally, I love how Jesus' friendship gives us a place at the Father's table. All that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. I think of 1 Samuel 9 of David and Jonathan. Jonathan has died, and before that, they were best friends, and they made an oath to one another that they would care for one another's children. If something happened to them, they assumed it would happen to David because Jonathan's dad, Saul, did not want David to be the next king of Israel, so he was, he was jealous already, and he went out and tried to kill him. And so Jonathan basically said, listen, if something happens to you, I'll watch your children. And, Jonathan, and David said the same. And then Jonathan died on the day that his dad, Saul, died, and all that was left was one boy named Mephibosheth who had been disabled when a, when a, uh, a, a, care, a caregiver dropped him. And, uh, and, and we read in 1 Samuel 9 that Mephibosheth ate at the table of the king as one of his sons. And I think that, that through Mephibosheth's father, he ate at the table of the king. It's really beautiful. We have a, a Christian school like, like you all do. And uh, uh, it's a wonderful school, and our grandson, Max, goes to it. He's our oldest grandson. He's in, I guess it's called preschool, and uh, not kindergarten yet. And uh, I love that he's there. We love that he's there. And one day, I was walking by our gym, and, you know, there are windows in the doors you could see inside the gym. And I saw Max in his class. So I stuck my head in, and I asked Miss Erica, his teacher, can I give Max a hug? And she said, sure. So Max sees me, and he's like, Papa. And I, and I took him, and I did what we do. I gave him a hug, said, tighter, tighter, and all that stuff. And when I looked up, all of Max's friends were lined up behind Max because they wanted hugs from Papa, too. Now, whenever I walk by them, like if they're on the playground, I hear a bunch of kids yelling, Papa, Papa. It's really a beautiful thing. Max made me their Papa. And he gave them a, a place at the table. Jesus' disciples had before been his servants, but now they were his friends. Growing up, Ray and I entered into the insanity that was one another's families without becoming part of them. We shared meals together. I, I was sharing last night that I remember we were on break from Bellhaven, and, and I, I, was, uh, I, I liked to goof off in school and not show up for class and stuff like that, and Ray was the opposite, and, um, and, uh, and that's okay. But uh, anyways, um, I, I was on suspension, and my dad found out that day and, and decided to talk with me about it at the table while Ray was there eating. It was very embarrassing, very deserved, 
and all of that. But we entered into that. We went to church together. We went to church concerts together. We heard family arguments together. We know each other's siblings' nicknames. And to this day, we laugh about those things. And even in separate years, when Ray and Diane got married, when Catherine and I got married, we went to his parents' cabin in North Carolina for our honeymoons. And to our, our wives' embarrassment, we refer to it, Ray and I do, as the love shack. <laughs> you see, friendship gives us a place. It lets us in. It transcends time and boundaries of blood. It takes remembrances, kindnesses, sorrows, disappointment, joy, laughter, good, bad, ugly, and tears, and safely burrows deeply into hearts until interwoven into the fabric of our own lives. In this moment, Jesus welcomed his friends into his story. Hey, every friendship is fraught with peril and danger, and many don't make it to the end. We often say how thankful we are that God has preserved us in ministry to the end and has given this, this friendship so many years. And there will always be Peter who tests your limits. There will always be Thomas who questions every word and every decision. There will always be Martha who is quick to blame you. There will always be Nicodemus who acts differently with you in public than he does in private. And there will always be Judas. And it would be easy for us to point the figure at them, but we are all of this to Jesus. Zechariah 13, 6, I asked the man about the stripes on his, where did you receive the stripes on your back? And he said, I received them, these stripes in the house of my friends. Listen, I don't want to, to be the kind of friend that is like that, but I sometimes am. We just sang it. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. We're the ones that put Jesus on the cross. We're the ones whose mocking he heard. We're not good friends to Jesus, and we can't possibly be good friends apart from him. Maybe you've been burned or betrayed, and you don't want to have anything to do with friendship. I get that. You've, you've put layers of self-protection around yourself, uh, whether emotionally or physically or in some other way, because you're afraid to believe that someone could see you and love you for who you are. You want to be loved, but you're afraid to be known. John Newton felt this. He wrote Amazing Grace. In 1795, before he was converted, he wrote, being my own enemy, I seem determined that nobody should be my friend. I have found that whenever I believe this lie, it turns me into a monster with those who love me the most because I become my own enemy. I'm so so, so broken over who I am, and it messes with my heart, my relationships. As I wrote this message and thought about Ray, I smiled a lot. Just memories and fun stuff. I didn't even think of the Mississippi thing. That warmed my heart. I thought of the shoe game we used to play. I thought of the concerts we used to go to, and just stuff, just good stuff, all those things. But there's only one perfect friend. It's Jesus. Jesus, the friend who loves at all times. Jesus, the friend who is closer than a brother. Jesus, who by his actions and sacrifice demonstrated that there is always a way back. There's always room to forgive. There's always something sweeter than past offenses and present tensions. There's always time to understand. There's always grace to reconcile. Only Jesus could make this so. Steve Brown talks about two of his friends who 
who, who um, gave up friendship with one another because of a $3 million deal. Years later, he ran into the guy who made all the money, and the guy said, I got a bad deal. I would give up the money to have my friend. Here's the thing. The alternative to the risk and messiness of friendship is the coldness of a perfectly sterilized, wrinkle-free, joyless, and isolated self. And in this, it becomes all about me. All about my opinion. All about how I like things. All about how I order my life. I have no iron to sharpen my iron. I don't know about you, but I get just a little tired of myself. I need friends. And you can do this. You can ward off intimacy. You can build walls around yourself. You can protect yourself from being hurt. You could do it with your personality. We every now and then do that with our humor a little bit. Uh, you, could, you, can, you can keep other people out. You have this power, but that is nothing more than survival. Perfection is toxic to relationship. Perhaps you're thinking, the last thing that I deserve is friendship with Jesus, and you're right. But worthiness never was a precondition. A believing heart broken of one's own self and sin and the notion that they can be good enough is all that Jesus needs to enter in and show you who he is, to give you what he gives. Back in Rome, friendship was sealed by oaths, but with Jesus, he offers a friendship that is sealed by his blood and resurrection, guaranteed in his death and resurrection. In his death, this fallen world and all our sin rubbed off on Jesus for you. Friend, Jesus is all this. He is all you need to be restored, reconciled, healed, and whole. That could be so terrifying because it means seeing ourselves for who we are, coming to terms with our insecurities, accepting the reality of our fears and our defenses, wondering what it would be like, as I said, to start over and to face my life as a forgiven, healed sinner. What will people think? But Jesus will settle for no less for you. He doesn't want cold piety. The answers aren't enough for you. He doesn't want filtered narratives. What he, he doesn't want what you think he wants you to be. What he wants, can't you see it, is you. He desires your unrevised, unfiltered, unsterilized self that he died for and that he holds dear. During COVID, Ray learned that a friend that we grew up with and went to school with was dying. He was the finest athlete our high school had ever known, junior high too, when he was there. He starred uh, in football on the college level, and were it not for a previously undetected injury in his back during his pro physical, he would have played in the NFL. But his life was a tragedy between his upbringing that injury and a failed marriage, his life was, had fallen into disappointment, sadness, and addiction. When his sister called on Ray, Ray went to him and discovered that this once chiseled athlete had become an emaciated, reclusive, dying, unrecognizable man. But not to Ray. To Ray, he saw his friend. 
even more, he introduced him to Jesus, the friend of sinners, the healer of the broken, the lover of lost sheep. And shortly after, our friend met Jesus and then died, but not without making it home. And that is what the Father sees when you come to him with empty hands, shed of all the pretense, all the God talk, all the platitudes that we use to protect us ourselves from being who we are. The Father sees in you what he always intended you and redeemed you to be in Jesus. I mean, isn't, the story that, isn't this the story that Jesus told about a boy who went to his dad and demanded his rights? That money's mine. I don't want to wait until you're 9,000 and I'm too old to enjoy it. I want to party. I want to decide what I do with my money. I want to do with my life what I want to do. Give me my money now. It's my right. And his father writes a check, says it's good anywhere. And he leaves. He goes to a distant land. And he makes friends because he's got the dough. And he parties. And he gets the women. And he enjoys himself. And then he runs out of the money. And his friends unfriended him. His BFF wasn't his BFF anymore. The girls weren't there anymore. He wasn't invited to the parties anymore. Couldn't even afford to eat. Ended up eating with pigs. And one day as he's in the slop, and his life is down the toilet, he remembers his dad who knew him, who loved him. And he thought, I need to go home because I can be a servant and my dad treats servants really well. And he goes home and he finds his dad waiting for him. And he doesn't make him a servant. He gives him a bath. He clothes him in great garments. He kills the fatted calf and he throws him a party and he pronounces, this son of mine was dead and now he is alive again. You see, to be Jesus' friends is to be known and loved because in the resurrection, every barrier to friendship with God has been broken through. On the cross, Jesus bore all that shame, all that guilt, all that embarrassment, all that humiliation, all that guilt, all that sin, he did the heavy lifting. It has been done. Jesus, who slept in death, has awakened, and nothing has the power to overcome his conquest. He didn't come to make you perfect, not in this life. He came to make you his. He's not waiting for you to be good enough or able enough or to be able to afford it. He already knows you can't pay the price. He came for you. He has come to, to make you his. And in friendship, the gospel story lets us in and restores us to the garden of the Father's delight through Jesus, our friend, who died and rose and one day is coming again for those who are his. Are you? Have you been waiting for that moment where you could say, I'm good enough? Stop waiting. It's a waste of time. Why not just 
crumble before him and acknowledge that he's enough. He's waiting for you. And this is our good news because it's the gospel. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.